I'm going to mention a word, um, and I, I want to know by sh raise, uh, raised hand if you know what this word means. You may, you may not. There's no extra points if you do or you don't. But uh, it's, it's a word that's been around here for some of us. And just, do, do you, would you have any idea what I mean if I say the word mishy? Raise your hand if you know what I mean by that. Okay. Um, okay. It's a word that Pastor Des made up. I didn't expect you to learn it in school. It's a word that Pastor Des made up, and basically it's when he was talking about something, you know, we would be in conversation. He said, you know, somebody to ask him, he said, I think it was one of those things that was just kind of mishy. What he means is it was either misspoken, misheard, miscommunicated, misunderstood, it just kind of, whatever the thing was, it got lost in that realm of, uh, of, of mishy. And we all get entangled in a mishy situation from, uh, from time to time, whether we're the ones who misspoke something or we're the person who misheard or miscommunicated or, or misunderstood, it all happens. I found the perfect story to illustrate this. I'm probably gonna regret this, um, it's probably going to fill up my inbox this afternoon, but I just couldn't. I, it's so, the story is to, so perfect to illustrate what Mishy means. She was an old-fashioned yet southern lady with culture and class. And, was certain, and, and there were certain words that she just simply would not use because of her sophistication. She was planning as a widow to go uh, on a couple weeks vacation in Florida, and she wrote a letter to a particular campground and asked for her reservations for herself, for her camper. She wanted to be sure the campground was, was fully equipped with everything that was necessary, but she didn't know quite how to ask about the toilet facilities. She just couldn't bring herself, because she was a southern charming lady, she couldn't bring herself to write the word toilet in her letter. She wanted to ask about the toilet without using the word toilet. And so after much deliberation, she finally came up with something she thought she could say, an old-fashioned term, and she, she asked about the bathroom commode. When she wrote that down, though she was writing about and asking about this, she still thought she was being too forward, even with that, that just still was uncomfortable. So, so she ripped up that, and she started all over again, and, and she rewrote the entire letter, and instead of putting the words bathroom commode, she decided she would simply just refer to it as the B.C. And so she would write, does the campground have its own B.C., was what she wrote. Well, the campground owner wasn't sophisticated, and he wasn't old-fashioned, and when he got that letter, he, for the life of him, could not figure out what she meant by, by that. <laughs> this B.C. really stumped him. And so after worrying about it for several days, he showed the letter around to other people to see if he could, they could figure out you know, what she was saying, and, and, uh, and, and <clears throat> he, he finally figured out and came to the conclusion what she must be referring to is the Baptist church. <laughs> so he sat down to write a reply to her, and here's his reply. You gotta remember though, she's asking, do you have a bathroom commode? And he's responding to, yes, we have a Baptist church, okay? Here's what he says, dear madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campsite. <clears throat> and it's capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it is quite a distance away if you're in the habit of going regularly. <clears throat> but no doubt you'll be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. <clears throat> 
they usually arrive early and stay late. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago, <coughs> and it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time that we were there. It may interest you to know that right now there's a supper plan to raise money to buy more seats for the BC. <coughs> I, I would like to say this. I would like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but it is surely not for a lack of desire on my part. As we grow older, it seems to be more and more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. If you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I could go with you the first time that you go and sit with you and introduce you to all the other fine folks who will be there. We really have a very, very friendly community here. <coughs> folks, that's Mishy, okay? A complete, complete misunderstanding and misfire between the person communicating and the person receiving the information. But I can tell you there's another time that takes place in most all of our lives where we have a dynamic encounter with this thing that we call, that we call Mishy. And it's this. It's going to feel like a bit of a whiplash here. I understand that, and I apologize for that. This is where we get into that thing called Mishy, misunderstand. It's that time when the appearance of darkness has fallen over us, and it has clouded our vision it has plugged up the ears of our heart, and it seems as if God has become utterly and completely silent. We sing it, holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, the hymn writer gave us. Now let me be clear from the outside. We may, on, we, we may feel as though we are operating in darkness, but let's understand clearly, and I want to establish this, that darkness is not God. For John says in 1 John 1, 5, he says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And whether we want to admit it or not, what happens when we go into the season of darkness or a season of feeling like the silence of God, we all have a tendency to start to define God in that moment based upon the difficult time we are going through or possibly the time we have just gone through rather than defining God by who and what he has always been for all eternity. Now, we, the, on the positive side, we have these encounters with him where, where he breaks into our lives with power, he answers our prayers, he wins our trust, he waters the garden of our faith, making it all lush and green, and then somehow we move into these other seasons where chaos careens with apparent carelessness through not only our lives, but also through the world, leaving us broken and shattered, or a relentless darkness uh, settles in over us. Or, or sometimes it feels like an arid wind and we don't even understand that wind. It blows across our spiritual landscape leaving the crust of our soul cracked and parched. And we cry out to God in our confused anguish and he just seems to be silent. It's in those moments that we understand a song that was written by Andrew Peterson, it's called The Silence of God, which is the title of my message today. That song says this, it's enough to drive a man crazy, it'll break a man's faith, 
It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleating for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Since laments are often better sung than said, it has always been the poets and the songwriters who who help us the most. It was Job who said in Job 30, I cry out to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you, you you don't even look my way. And King David, who said this, and we've all read the Psalms and heard him go through various levels of lament. And in Psalm 22, he said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. Atheists will tell us that the reason God seems silent is because he is absent. That's what they would say. No one's home at that address in heaven that you are calling on. And somehow in our silent suffering, uh, in those seasons of that, <laughs> we're almost tempted to believe that they're correct, that he's absent. That is, until we take a step back and look and see that existence itself is not silent. The world we live in itself, nature around us, everything in existence, it is not silent. It literally screams God, and I reference Romans 1.20. For those of you taking notes, I really do recommend, I've got some things you're going to want to jot down in just a minute. To believe atheism and what they would say about God is like modern people believing that the earth is flat. Remember, that used to be the theory long before we got here. Because we would tend to say, from where I stand, it doesn't look like God is there. He is silent. And if you only trust your perceptions, then the world looks flat. The only reason that we know the world is round is because of authoritative scientific revelation and many corroborating testimonies. I'm going to give you a fancy new word that I learned this week. What we experience is as, as God's absence or distance or what we experience is as God's silence is really phenomenal, phenomenological, phenomenological. I found this theory, it was by a, uh, a, a German philosopher by the name of Edmund Herschel, and, and basically what he's saying is it's just how we perceive it. It's phenomenological. It's how it looks and feels, but it is not how it actually is. Just like we can experience the world as flat when actually you and I are standing or sitting today on a huge spinning ball. We know that now, but when we look out, it looks flat to us. Well, guess what? We can experience God as absent or distant when actually in him we live and move and have our being. In reality, Job And uh, King David, (coughs) they were not really experiencing God's silence. It's just how it felt to them at the time. And when you and I feel forsaken by God, we are not forsaken because we have his promise. And I know you know this and cling to it as much as I do, that he said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. 
So here's what needs to happen, and for many of us in the room today, we are called as believers to trust the promise more than the perception. The perception may be that God is silent. It may feel like that to you. It may look like that to you. And the longer the season has been, the more it may look like that to you. But God's silence, I'm here to tell you today, is how it feels. It's not how it is. It's phenomenological. I can't even say it. And I practiced it all week long. It's how it feels. But it's not how it is. When you read in the Bible about the word wind, you'll find that when it's not referring to the Holy Spirit, it is most often talking about a storm of life. It is referenced to or directly related to a storm of life. You'll read in times of scripture where these large gusts of wind send people topsy-turvy and, and their lives go into utter turmoil. The greatest sermon that was, was ever preached on planet Earth was the Sermon on the Mount. And when Jesus closes that sermon, he gives the final story of one man building a house on the rock and the other man building a house on the, on the sand. And you remember the song, many of you do. The rain fell and the floods came, Matthew 7 tells us, and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And you will see this concept throughout Scripture of wind blowing Blowing people, blowing, uh, blowing things, and turning lives upside down. And what I want us to understand today is that when the wind begins to blow in your life, there are certain things that happen to us, and there are certain things that we tend to do when the winds blow and when the storms come. And here's the first of those things if you're taking notes. When the winds blow, we most often will accuse God. We accuse God. That's what the disciples did in Mark chapter 4. They're in a boat when suddenly all this wind comes and causing the boat to be filled with water. And now they're in trouble. And then now that they're in trouble, here comes the accusation. They're saying, Jesus, don't you care? Don't you even care that we're going to drown here? There's the accusation. And isn't that a common experience for all of us? When the winds blow and the storms come and, and everything is, is topsy-turvy in our life, don't we come to that moment that says, God, do you not even care? Why are the heavens as brass and why are you so silent? Well, not only do we accuse God, but something else happens when the wind blows. When the wind blows, the storm comes, we lose stuff. We lose stuff. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 27. Paul and some other prisoners are in a boat, and the winds come, and the storm comes. And the Bible even gives this, this storm a name. I happen to find it interesting. It's called Euraquilo. That's the name of the storm. Literally, you can, you can find it there in Acts 27. It's, it's called Euraquilo. Some of the versions, I always check out several versions of Scripture. Some call it Eurocladon. But it's the same thing, either Euraquilo or, uh, or Eurocladon. We would call it a Northeaster, and that's a whole lot easier to say. The storm became so bad that they had to start throwing cargo overboard. Guess what? Baggage had to go when the storm came. 
And haven't you noticed in life that when winds begin to blow, we often have to release baggage that we have carried? Hello. And we often have to release people that we have carried when the winds come and the storms blow. It always seems to be that a good storm of life will force you to evaluate your priorities and realize that some of your stuff has got to go. Something else happens to us when the winds blow, and that is this. When the winds blow, life can change fast. Life can change fast. Just take one look at Job chapter 1. Nobody in human history has ever faced in one day what that man went through. In one day, he became homeless. He became childless. He became penniless. All in one day. Lost everything. It was just a few years ago, some of you will remember in January that there was a fire in a house about two blocks from us, right, right down this street over here uh, to the northeast of us. The, the family had, did not go to our church, was not part of our church, but Bethesda rushed in to help and do everything we possibly could on lots of levels. Bethesda Cares was there, and we opened this church to have the funeral. And literally, there were, there was, uh, the grandmother was perished in the fire, and three grandchildren perished. Four people died in one family in one day, and we literally had four caskets lined up across this sanctuary. I'll never forget that funeral. It was in January and cold outside and, 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 and the grief of the family members who remained. They didn't hardly know which casket to go to next. And it was just, it was grief times four for them. Well, imagine Job and the ten caskets at the funeral for his family. So that's what he had to experience. Life changed fast when the wind blew in his life. And one day a powerful wind comes. Your house blows over on your children. Your children are all killed and your livestock are all gone. And then in one day, he loses all of his health. No one in human history has faced that level of human pain. The only thing he didn't lose was his wife, which, by the way, she was acting. He may have wished, I don't know, I'll leave that alone. <clears throat> when the wind blows, we accuse God. When the wind blows, we lose stuff. When the wind blows, life changes fast. And though we may know all this, we may feel like we understand it, it's still true. Somehow, as Christians, as believers, it's a thought that is deep within us that somehow, because we are Christians, now everything is supposed to go well for us. And the minute we run into challenge, the minute things become difficult, the minute the winds begin to blow, it might be on a new job, it might be in a new circumstance, living in a new city, it, whatever it is, the minute that comes, then some of us will, if we're at level, what I'm going to call level one, we'll start to say things like, well, I must not be in the will of God. Because if this were a God thing, everything would be going smoothly. I would have no challenges, I would have no difficulties, my day, I would just slide right through it if, if, if I was in the will of God. How many, of you can, how many of you can tell me that's not been your testimony? Not been your testimony. That's not the way it always works. And then some people, when things get difficult, they'll take it to level two. And they'll come to this conclusion. They'll say, if life is not good, then God must not be good. And then some people will go on to level three and they'll say, if life is not good, then God does not 
exist. So I'm going to ask us this morning, why do storms in our lives, why does God's silence make it so difficult to believe? Truthfully, storms challenge us on on many levels, but I want us to be reminded of something this morning as I head toward my very brief text, and that's this. When we get a storm in our life, we get so much more than just a storm because we get God in that storm. When a storm brings divorce, when it brings death, when it brings health issues, financial issues, relational issues, I want you to know today, and I want you to stand in the confidence, that storm also brings the highway on which God loves to travel. I'm going to show you that that storm literally brings God to your rescue. But if you forget everything else, I'm asking you to remember this. We tend to think a storm means no God, when the storm actually means how you can know God. That's what it means. If you're in the position today in your life and the winds are blowing through your life and the storm has come and you are tempted to think God is not there, no God, I'm here to tell you we got to turn that around and let you understand this is the very circumstance through which you are going to get to know God, K-N-O-W, in a way you have never known him before. That is the way it works. We, t- we think the storm means God doesn't care, but the storm really means God is there. We think the storm means I've just lost, not understanding that the storm really means you've just gained. And here's what I want, here's how I want to prove my point from Psalm 104. It says this, bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great, and you are clothed with splendor and majesty covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. And here's what I want you to see. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He walks upon the wings of the wind. Is that stirring anybody's soul today or just mine? He makes the winds his messengers. It is important to know he makes the clouds his chariots. He walks upon the wings of the wind and he makes the winds his messengers. Somebody ought to say, thank God. Listen to me carefully, church. When there's a wind, look for God because those clouds are his chariots. To those of you who feel like you are walking in a season of the silence of God, please remember, the storm does not mean that he is far away from you. The storm means this, he's coming on the clouds with a message for you. That's what it means for you today. And that's when you determine, not that there is no God, but determine that in that storm you are going to come to know God, K-N-O-W, like you have never known him before because he's on his way. In recent days, we've seen some powerful hurricanes wreak havoc on parts of our nation and on the Caribbean. But in the East and in Asian countries, they experience something they call monsoons. In the Indian Ocean, they regularly see a monsoon, uh, they see those storms regularly. And I've learned that a monsoon can 
come up very, very suddenly, very, very quickly. Sometimes they, they come up so suddenly that they cannot even forecast that they are coming. So when a monsoon storm comes, an inexperienced ship captain, will tr- an inexperienced one, will try to break through the storm by going to the storm's outer edges. However, the winds cross each other at the ed- edges and they break up the ships. So what happens is, instead of you breaking the storm, the storm breaks you. But an experienced captain who knows what he's doing will ride to the center of the storm, the clearest, calmest part of the storm, right into the eye of the storm. And you know what he does? He cuts his motor off. And here's why. Because an experienced captain understands this. The storm's eye always gravitates toward land. And the goal of the monsoon is to get to land and wreak its havoc on the land. So the experienced captain realizes that he doesn't have to try to get himself to land. The safest place for him is right in the middle of that storm where it's calm and peaceful in the eye of the storm. And that storm itself will navigate him and take him right to where he needs to go and get him safely there. So, if today that is you, and I'm talking to you, and you are right in the center of a storm, then I I have advice for you, and my advice to you is this, turn off your engines. Get right in the calm, peaceful middle of that storm, right in the middle of it. Turn off your engines and let God take you right to where he has designed you to be. When it seems God is silent, I'm always reminded of one of my favorite hymns. And it's the second verse of the hymn that always comes to mind. It's this. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. Through every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I love verse 3 too. It says, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. But probably the verse that we all know the best, that is most familiar to us, is that first verse. And it says this. By the way, did you ever, like me as a child growing up singing hymns, did you ever sing lyrics that you had no idea what they meant? Everybody else did it and raised their hands and worshiped, and you thought, I have no clue what that means, but that sounds good, so I'll worship too. That was my life growing up as a kid in church. First verse, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What's that? But wholly lean on Jesus' name. Sang it my entire life, no clue. What does sweetest frame mean? I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Well, let me tell you what I finally learned. I'm a slow learner, it took me a while. It's an English phrase. 
This hymn was written by Edward Mote, originally from London. And if you look it up, the word frame, yes, you see the idea of a picture frame. That's there. But you also see the idea of, of, of a structure, like, like a framework. As a musician and arranger, I tend to think of a song and looking at its, at its frame, its architectural structure, its framework. So I understand that. But there's also a part of the definition means it refers to a state of mind. That's where we get our phrase, frame of mind. He's not in a good frame of mind. She's, or she's in a good frame of mind. So here's what Edward Mote wrote for you and me to sing when he said, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. Even when I'm in my best frame of mind, my sweetest frame of mind, even when I'm in my best frame of mind, I can't trust it. I can't trust it. And the fact that he talks about the sweetest frame is a good indication that he knows that all of us have the other kind too, the not so sweet, right? That's the way that works. Which is why I can't trust it. Because my mind, my frame of mind is always changing. I can come to church one week and you know this is true for you and everyone is awesome. I just have a great time. I'm happy to see everybody. And how many know you can come the next week and everyone's demonic in the church? <laughs> I, am I telling you it's the truth? You were mad when you pulled in the parking lot. Somebody pulled out. Somebody got the parking place you wanted. And it goes from there. The greeter was talking to somebody else and didn't even hand you a bulletin. And then, and then, and then you didn't get to the seat you normally sit in in the sanctuary. And then... And the whole thing is bad. And you can come back the next week and everything's angelic, everything's wonderful. One week it's good, next week it's bad. That's because we are ever changing. So the message in that hymn is this. Don't even trust your sweetest frame. But since God is who you can truly trust and you're standing, you're positioning yourself, yourself on the solid rock Christ Jesus, here's what you're going to do instead. Holy lean on Jesus' name. That's what that's about. Without a doubt, there will come those times when darkness seems to hide his face and God appears to be silent. You want to believe him, but you don't see him. You want to listen to him, but you just can't hear him. If that's you today, let me give you just three little pieces of, of advice. And I'm going to try to get done quickly here if you'll, if you'll stay with me. Three things, and I would recommend you jot these down. If you're in that position. Number one, let God define God. Let God define God. If the winds are blowing and the storm has arisen in your life, just do this. Let God define God. Don't try to define God in the middle of your storm. Wait until the storm passes over. Don't define God according to your current frame of mind. Let God define himself to you through his word. I just happened to, I love this verse, I always have. We used to sing it around here. From 1 Peter, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, uh, it's often referred to as peculiar people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, which is another way of saying that you may declare the goodness of God 
Who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? That you may proclaim the goodness of God. That's what we are admonished to do every Sunday morning when our worship leaders step before us. Let's proclaim the goodness of God. You know what that means, church? It means that we serve a good God. Oh, that was weak. We serve a good God. And here's what you need to know today. He is good whether your day is good or not. He's good no matter what your frame of mind is. If it's your sweetest frame or the other kind. God is still good. And so here's what we need to know. The reason why we worship, the reason why we lift our hands, the reason why we lift our voice when Brent asks us to lift our hands or Gerard or Jovan, we don't do it because it's a good song. You may not even like the song. That's not the motivation for doing that. We don't do it because it's a good song. We don't do it because you're having a good day. We lift our hands because he is a good God. That's why we lift our hands. And our problem is we think we can only worship on certain styles of songs. It's been an issue we fought for a long, long time. When you've been involved in Christian music as much as I have, which is an eternity now, and you've done it all. Uh, you know, some churches like all hymns. Some churches are only doing the current praise and worship music. Some churches do only all black gospel. Some churches do Caribbean or Hispanic. And I've had the privilege of being involved in all of that. Because we're a multicultural church, here's what happened here. Because then I know I'm qualified to address this subject. The white people uh, get upset over if we're singing only black gospel music, not understanding why we sing the same thing over and over and over and over again because black gospel seems to sound that way. And then when the white people sing their music, the black people will say, there's too many words in that song. It's like singing the phone book or singing a novel. Why can't we just sing one good phrase and sing it until it gets down in our soul? And the poor music pastor can't please anybody. Can I get a witness? But church, here's the truth. It doesn't matter what the song is. It doesn't matter what style it is. I know you like a certain style. I got my favorites too. I understand that. But don't tell me we can only sing black gospel or white people music, whatever that is, or Hillsong or Bethel. It's not about good songs. It's about a good God who is worthy of our praise. Get over that. Get over it and worship him. Let God defined God, not you, not you. Number two, when you are in the dark, you will see things that you have never seen before. What do I mean? You cannot see the millions of stars in the sky until the nighttime. It's not until God clicks off the lights, the sun goes down, that you get to see the majesty and the brilliance of his nighttime handiwork, Selah. God says, there are things I'm going to show you about me that you can't even see when everything is going great and the sun is up. For one thing, he's saying, I struggle to get your attention when everything is going great. Some of us decide, we, we got this now, God, I'll see you a little later. But he's going to show you things about himself that you can't even see it 
when the sun is up and everything's going well. So when the storm comes and the wind blows and the darkness falls and God seems silent, don't define God just yet. No, 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 no. You say, God, I know you're about to show me things about yourself. Because I know this, you walk on those winds that are blowing around all around me. And I think, I think, just maybe, I'm starting to hear the rumbling of those chariots in the clouds that are carrying you right to me. And those winds are bringing me a message from you. So when God turns the lights off, look for the stars. Number three, follow the tracks of the past. Follow the tracks of the past. For most of you facing a storm today, this is not your first storm. You've been either in this one or another one like it. And I want to tell you something. When you faced a storm in the past, whether you realized it or not, you were laying tracks for future storms. And if you're going through a storm today, let me tell you something you're doing, whether you're even aware of it or not. You are laying tracks today for some future storm that you're going to have to face. Sometimes you face a storm, and all of a sudden you go, things look awfully familiar here. And you find yourself saying, you know what, I think I have been here before. When you follow the tracks of the past, it gives you faith to remember that the same God who got you through that last storm is the same God who's going to get you through this storm for the glory of the name of Jesus. How many of you have spent any part of your life in some part of the country where they have snow, like lots of snow? Raise your hand. What are you doing in Texas? <laughs> We're glad you're here. Then you people who raised your hand, you know what a whiteout is. Yes? Wave at me if you know what a whiteout is. I'm not talking about the little bottle of stuff that you put on the paper to correct your mistake. Not that. No, a whiteout is when you take high winds and you have a lot of snow and it suddenly becomes so bad that you literally cannot see what is directly in front of you. If you're like me and driven in that part of the country, I've driven a car in winter whiteout where I could not see five feet in front of me. So what do you do? In that moment, those of you who've been in that situation, you have nothing else to do but to follow the tire tracks of the car right in front of you. Because in that moment, you can't see a future. In that moment, you can't see ahead. In that moment, you can't see an exit. You can't even see, hello, the brake lights of the car right in front of you. Do I need to preach that or did you get it? You can't even see the brake lights of the car right in front of you. So what do you do? You follow the tracks. And this morning... You may not know what tomorrow looks like, but here's what you've got for today. If he got me through yesterday, I can't see much past. I can see a little tiny track up there. Follow the track of the past and let that track lead you right to Jesus. I don't see much. I don't see much at all, Pastor Dan. But I see just enough of the track to take the next step. That's all I've got for today. If that's all you have today, friend, then blessed be the name of the Lord. Because he rides on the winds. 
And when you take that step, you're going to begin to hear the rumbling of the chariots. Those chariots are being the clouds are stirring around you, but he's in that chariot and he's being brought right to you in the middle of your storm. Stand with me, church. Don't ever forget this. From dark clouds, we get precious water. From dark minds, we get precious stones. And from our darkest trials come our finest blessings from God. Now, before anybody takes off, I want to tell you something. I'm glad I didn't plan on it. But I have a whole addendum to this message. Because once this started exploding in my heart, and I was doing my research and study on it, learning all those fancy words. <laughs> Somehow I, got, I ended up in the book of Revelation. And I didn't have time to do it this morning. And it's kind of a shift in thought, sort of. But I want to talk about when God breaks his silence or when God is going to break his silence from Revelation chapter 10. So you know what I'm going to do? It added about another 10 minutes maybe to this message and I knew I wouldn't have time to do it today. And I need to kind of lay it out a little bit differently. I'm going to do it at the prayer service tonight. When God breaks his silence. <clears throat> because it's, I wish I could have done it this morning, but maybe you'll come to the prayer service tonight. <laughs> Some of you need to hear that exactly. And we're going to be praying for you and lots of other wonderful things in the service tonight. But I just want to know this. I'm aware of the time. We've had a very full service today. <clears throat> Just by raise of hand, how many of you are saying, you know, Pastor, I really want to hear the rumbling of the chariots and the clouds, being assured that God's on his way. Or maybe you're saying, I want to see him walking on the winds of my life. Pastor, I've got to see him walking on the wind. Those winds are all, they're swirling around me. And maybe you're saying, I'm ready for the message that the winds are bringing, according to Psalm that we read this morning. If that's anybody in the house, just raise your hand so I just know who I'm praying for. Anybody, anybody in the balcony? Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, you see all these hands. You seem to do such incredible work in the storms of our life. Most of us in this room are there. But here's what we're saying, Lord. We are so thankful for a faithful God. And if we got nothing else today, we got this. We know this. We serve a good God. We serve a good God. And so we're going to plant our foot firmly on that step today that we serve a good God who is for us and not against us. And so therefore, Lord, if you have sent this storm and we have prayed and we have felt like you have been silent, the heavens have been brass as they say, then Lord, here's what we're going to be assured of, that you are there. You're going to show us things in this time that we would not have seen any other time. And we are going to de not define you by the way it feels to us today, but in the assurance that you are the eternal one, always the faithful one, even when we are faithless. And so, Lord, I ask your grace to be upon every member of Bethesda today. Those who are, things are going well, bless the Lord, pour out your blessings, open the windows of heaven upon them today, Lord. But I pray for those who are walking through that storm and it feels like it is never, 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 never going to end Lord, give them grace. Let that little thing happen within their heart that assures them that you are there and you're riding on those winds and you are closer than they even think you are. And then begin to speak that little word 
in their ear and let them see the little tire tracks right in front of them to take the next step, the next step, and the next step. So, Lord, we commit today our will and our way to you, and we ask your grace to be upon us in the mighty name of Jesus. And the church said? Let the church say? Come on, let's put your hands together and let's bless the Lord in this house today.